Welcome to the Workplace Forward Podcast with your host, executive coach Tegan Travato, founder and CEO of Bright Arrow Coaching. Are you a perpetually busy, always overstretched leader or executive who feels there's never time to keep up with leadership trends in an always changing landscape, much less self-care? Workplace Forward will help you overcome both challenges and gain peace of mind. Through Tegan's conversations with executives, experts, authors, and innovators about their leadership journeys, you'll get quick hits of two things you need the most. Essential insights to help navigate the future workplace and best practices on the more human side of leadership so you're empowered to take care of yourself while leading others. Enjoy some well-deserved time for yourself to learn and recharge. Let's get started with today's guest. Tegan, take it away. Leaders, today on the podcast, we have the great opportunity to interview Dory Clark. That's probably a name many of you have heard before. If you read Harvard Business Review, you have no doubt read at least a few of Dory's articles. She's been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50. She's a number one communication coach by the Marshall Goldsmith Leading Global Coaches Award. She's a top five communications professional by the world by Global Gurus. You've probably seen some of her keynotes or maybe caught one of her classes at Duke University or Columbia Business School. What I really love about Dory is that despite all these accolades, she is just kind. She's a normal human and probably proud to come off as such. She does not lead with ego. She makes herself available for what feels important. And I feel lucky to spend time with someone who, on top of all those accolades, on the side just writes musicals and has a Grammy-winning jazz album and is a Broadway investor. She's just endlessly interesting. Today, we're going to focus a lot on the newest book she's written, The Long Game, Long-Term Thinking in a Short-Term World, A Leader Like You. I share the struggle that the last couple of years have been in terms of feeling the need to react and respond with so much urgency to the things that are just changing and popping up in the world. And what Dory is inviting us to do is to remember we can make the choice to focus on the long-term thinking and to slow down and remember that we are playing a long game. And this invitation is well-timed in the world, in my opinion. So please enjoy hearing from this brilliant author, speaker, thinker, and see what you might take away and apply in your own leadership. Dory, welcome to the podcast. Tegan, I'm so glad to be talking with you. Oh, it's a privilege to have you today. I, of course, devoured your book. So excited to bring listeners to this content if they haven't already found it. So... We're going to talk a lot about the long game, how leader, how to be a long-term thinker in a short-term world, a topic that I can tell you we're talking about a lot in corporations right now, right? Things have really changed in the world. So what inspired you to write the book? So I was originally inspired, Tegan, to, to write the book by a host of I guess you could say pre-pandemic things. Mm -hmm. I was noticing in myself and in the people around me that there was just so much almost kind of frenzy and rushing around that, that you know, in, in the business world, in our lives, that I just kept hearing from people, all, all these, these kind of telltale phrases of like, oh, I just wish I had time to think, or I just wish I had a moment to breathe. Mm -hmm. And I realized we were pushing ourselves so hard and so fast that there almost structurally wasn't time 
to be able to think or to engage in long-term thinking. We were just caught in execution mode, which, you know, is, is not bad. We need that. But we also periodically need to be able to look up and determine whether the things we're doing are the right things to be doing. Yes. So I think that was the state for a lot of us during COVID. And then, of course, the pandemic immediately ground that to a halt. But at that point, we became short-term thinkers for a completely different reason, which is that we weren't able to plan anything more than a couple of weeks out because the world kept changing. You know, you could say, oh, well, we'll, you know, yeah, we'll have our conference in July. And then you're like, well, I mean, <laughs> September. Well, I mean, January. Mm-hmm. And it, it just became ridiculous after a while. But I, I actually believe that this really is the moment where if if we're going to fight this battle, if we're going to make a change, this is the moment now where we really definitively should begin saying, no, 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 you know, short-term thinking, you need it. It's important sometimes, but it can't always be this way. And I think we need to tip the scales back in favor of making an effort toward long-term thinking now. Yeah. I love that. And yeah, we're seeing this inside of organizations with the executives we coach that it's been react, react, react. And that has made sense, but there's some part of humans that that is habitual if we're not careful. So I love that your book is calling people's consciousness back to, okay, you are in charge. You can slow this down and think longer, longer term and bigger picture. So what's interesting though, is I wonder why thinking about the long game is more difficult now than it probably was even 10 years ago? Yeah, it's a a good question. I mean, certainly I think you have it right that part of it is just that we have gotten into habits for ourselves. We've gotten into Mm -hmm. the rut of short-term thinking. And so for many of us, we forget there's an alternative. We forget there's a different way to be. But I mean, it's also true that to a certain extent, it is fighting human nature. And it's not illogical, right? I mean, if if, if I say, oh, you know, if I can have a good thing now, or if I can have a good thing in five years, I'll take it now. Thank you. You know, there's yeah. <laughs> a lot that can happen between now and five years. But yeah. I, I think the important thing that we need to recognize is it's not usually an apples to apples comparison like that. It, it actually is, okay, do you want a thing that seems kind of good now? Or do you actually want a more important, better, longer term goal that feels further out? It feels more uncertain. You have to work for it, you know, which, you know, these these are all things that we don't necessarily love to do. But at the end of the day, it actually will be better. It actually will be more satisfying for your career or your family life or, or whatever it is. Are you willing to work for the harder but better mm-hmm. thing? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's really important. We have to make it clear to people that that's the trade-off. And I think it's it's kind of a matter of character to be able to be willing to make that trade-off, to, to get that that harder but better thing. Yeah. Maybe clarity first and then character second. Yes, you do yes. talk quite a bit in the book about the need to get clear on what's worth our time in that long game. And I just so have, it's been really fun to see inside of your life over the last couple of decades that you describe in the book of what emerged as being worthy of your long game and what a long game might look like for professionals. So Give leaders and listeners a little taste of some things they might do to get clear on what's worth the long game for them. Yeah, absolutely. I also think this is a place where sometimes people kind of needlessly tie themselves up. They, you Mm. know, in many ways, I, I would say it might even be like 
a, a piece of it is rational for sure, but I think a piece of it might also be a procrastination strategy of just, oh, well, I couldn't possibly do blah, blah, blah until mm-hmm. I'm clear. And then it's like, you're just circling the drain endlessly. Am I okay. clear enough? I don't know. Good tune up. <laughs> gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, th- I think in a lot of ways, you know, we think about, okay, what's a good long-term goal? My answer is, all right, well, like, you know, what do you think's a good long-term goal? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, what are you interested in? You know, mm-hmm. like, like pick something. It doesn't have to be the right answer. I mean, it can be a provisional goal. It can be something that like, okay, maybe it's not the definitive, like soulmate. Oh, you were meant for it goal, but it's something you like. It's something you're interested in. It's something that seems like a meaningful goal and you, you start working toward it. If it turns out as you're working toward it, that something better emerges, fine, do that. That's okay. But the act of working toward your goal will probably mean that you have more optionality and that you are at least closer in the general direction that you're trying to get than if you had done nothing at all. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to get this quote right, but early in your book, you talk about kind of how rare it is that people commit to the long game. Is that a fair like paraphrase? I remember you saying something like when you were talking about how it took you five years to accomplish a key something in your life that you, it was, was it breaking, getting your first book proposal and the hundreds and hundreds of articles you wrote over five years, I think. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I started really clearly, like I sort of put a, put a stake in the ground that in 2009, that was going to be when I, when I sold my first book. Mm -hmm. And of course, I was not able to sell my first book until two years after that. And because of publication schedules, just, you know, these things take a while. My first book didn't come out until 2013. So it was, you know, a four-year process for something that in my head I imagined would be like, all right, I'll bang this out in a couple of months. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's so rare for people to be able to dig into a journey like that? Well, I, I think that what often happens, which you can understand, is that just people get discouraged. They they get some early sign that it's not working. And then instead of viewing it in what I would argue is, is probably the proper context, which is, mm-hmm. oh, well, that approach didn't work, but let's try a different approach. Or, mm-hmm. oh, well, that person didn't like my stuff, but let's see if a different person likes my stuff. They somehow view it as like an edict from God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah. well, the universe doesn't want me to dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. And it becomes this kind of ego preservation device. Like, well, okay, I guess I won't. And then they they step back. You know, they try it once, they try it twice, and they think that's enough. And I think what, what's really important and part of why I wanted to write this book is, and, and it wouldn't necessarily occur to us unless it was explicitly stated, but for a lot of successful people, it's like, no, no, no. Like once or twice is, is barely beginning. Like you need to put it in front of 30 people. You need to put it in front of a hundred people. That's Mm -hmm. what's, that's what's necessary in this situation. You're going to have a lot of gatekeepers and they might not have any idea. I mean, I forget the exact number, but you know, it's, it's well over a dozen people that, you know, classically that rejected Harry Potter. Right. I mean, like quite objectively, they were wrong. They were, you know, these were like, you know, the smart, educated gatekeepers, right. and they were completely freaking wrong about right, what the right, market right. was interested in. Mm-hmm. And so we tend to give way too much credence mm-hmm. to other people who are in positions of power. Oh, they must know, they must have this great critical discernment. And actually, often they don't. And it's really important not to listen to them. Oh, what a good point. 
Listen, you talk a little bit too about this confusion we sometimes have with being busy versus being important. So give us your take on that. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, I, I think almost all of us these days feel pretty busy, <laughs> you know, sort mm-hmm. of certainly anecdotally, most professionals I know feel a little bit overwhelmed. The pandemic certainly did not help in this regard, but we'd all like to change it, right? It's not, it's not a great feeling to feel That's busy. Right. Mm-hmm. And yet it seems like for so many people, it never gets changed. And I wanted to try to understand that a little bit more because you would think if you had a bunch of smart people who are relatively resolute about, oh no, this is terrible. I've got to fix it, which is what we all say, that something would be different, that we could figure out a strategy. And yet we seem to find ourselves back in the same place. And so I began really looking into it. And it turns out that a lot of times, I, I, frankly, we're kind of self-sabotaging around mm-hmm. busyness mm-hmm. because some interesting research out of Columbia University, Sylvia Baletza and her colleagues did research where they, they said that one key factor is that at least in the US, busyness becomes a form of status. Yeah. And so we kind of get a little bit addicted to it because even if it feels a little bit stressful and a little bit miserable, we feel good about ourselves and we feel a sense of purpose about, oh, well, I'm, I'm important. People yeah. need me. Right. And we don't really want to give that up. Yeah. Tag on the heels of that. Something I've been noticing in our execs is, especially when someone leaves sort of a junior executive seat for a more senior executive seat, I have had more than one person just this year say, it's wild how much all I do is think and talk to people. And I'm like, yeah, that's your job now. But no one really tells you that before you move into the executive seat. Your intellectual capital is literally what you're getting paid for. You're getting paid to use your brain and share your thoughts with people that help the business grow. And we're talking about the same group of people, Dory, the same ones that are so busy, they can't like unwind their nervous systems to allow their best thoughts to come through. And that's literally their jobs at a certain level in an organization. So I'm pointing that out because I love your, you know, the whole point on being busy versus being important. And the fact that as executives, our job is to think. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a, such a good point, Tegan. What strategies have you personally incorporated into your week to create some of that open space and maximize your time? Well, I would say there's a, there's a couple of major things. One is that I've tried to become pretty religious about structuring my calendar so that activities are clustered together. Mm-hmm. We lose a lot of time in task switching. And yeah. so, you know, there's there's been a million studies about, oh, you know, you check that one email and then it takes you, you know, 20 minutes to kind of reorient or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so what I what I have done at a broader level is I try to have meeting, basically meeting days and non-meeting days. And on my meeting days, I pack it in because I can just kind of go from meeting to meeting, but I'm in like the meeting flow mode. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then on the non-meeting days, those are the days where I actually tackle more substantive things. I mean, you know, on a meeting day, if I have 15 minutes, 30 minutes, I can answer emails in between, you know, that's fine. But I really can't do a mentally taxing kind of thing. I can't, you know, create the speech or I can't, you know, write the article or whatever. It's just, it's just, at least for me, it's too much for me to be able to pull off in 20 minutes. Right. So I need a little bit more time to ease into it and to be able to give it the thought that it deserves. So I try to cluster my, my appointments in that way. I think the other thing that I realized too, is we often 
we often create a lot of our own problems by initiating things ourselves. And so Mm -hmm. this is where saying no becomes really powerful. I think there, you know, in, in my book, the long game, there's a a whole chapter talking about this and about strategies around it because, Mm -hmm. you know, we often systematically underestimate things. We, you know, in my head, it's like, Oh, Dory, well, will you do this webinar? And, you know, I, I like, at a glance, it's like, well, it's an hour. I guess I can fit it in. And you sort of forget. It's like, oh, but then they want to run through and then they want a planning call. And, you know, there's like 10 emails back and forth. And when you've said yes to the webinar, at that point, you're kind of locked in. Like, you can't be a jerk and be like, no, I'm not going to do a planning call. You're mm-hmm. like, oh, God, I guess I need to. And so suddenly your one hour commitment that you agreed to becomes like maybe four yeah. with all of the things you have to do. And you realize, oh, that was an unforced error. And, and mm-hmm. you got to get smarter about that. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think about that, Tegan? How do you, what are the strategies you apply? Oh, you are asking a big time nerd here, a very oh, I fun know question. It. I, I I think there's much we can learn from you. Well, that's nice of you. Well, I always do a look back on my calendar to just make sure anything I'm spending time on connects to like my strategy for the year. So the year starts with- And the look back how often? Like what's the frequency? Every six months. I used to do it more frequently, but now that I'm more machine-like in terms of, nope, that doesn't go on the calendar. That's not for me. That's a referral for someone else, et cetera. I don't have to look back as often. Every six months or so. And- My calendar is extremely tight, extremely color coordinated. I know exactly how much time I'm spending coaching versus working on the business versus interviews versus podcasts, right? So that's part of it. And then occasionally I will just go on a slash and burn mission. If it gets too tight, yeah, I just go look and nope, this has got to go. This has got to go and just kind of clean it up. So so that, uh, that means you'll you'll just you'll just cancel a bunch of stuff. You're just like no, I can't. Yes. Yes. Unless I mean appropriately, right? Like or I'll move it out. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, those are some of the things I do. Uh-huh. And yeah, and then I really every that six month look back, I'll just see like how many hours am I spending towards initiative one, initiative two, and am I getting the right outcome for where I'm putting my time? So so good. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Yeah. And you've done some time studies. Do you like to do those regularly yourself? I know you've done a couple over the years, but is that a regular habit for you? That is correct. I've done a couple. And by time study, what we mean is I have over a 30-day period, I've done this twice, Mm -hmm. tracked everything that I did in 15-minute increments. And the answer is no, I don't do it all the time because it's horrible and painful and very boring. (laughs) So I think that's why most people don't do it to begin with. Yeah even though it is incredibly informative. Yeah. So I highly recommend it, but, you know, with a proviso that, you know, like going on a, whatever, like a 30 day juice fast or whatever, like, I'm sure it's nice, but like, good Lord, it's a hassle. Right. Right. <laughs> so, yes. In many um, ways. Yes. <laughs> but, but it is really fascinating because of course, you know, we all have plenty of ideas about how we spend our time. Oh, I spent seven hours a day checking email. Well, mm-hmm. you know, probably not in mm-hmm. all honesty. If I'm sure it feels like seven hours, but it probably isn't. So yeah. like, what are you actually doing? And to be able to see it, to quantify it, that's really the necessary first step to be able to make changes and to understand, oh boy, I'm really doing too much of this and not enough of that. So you can mm-hmm. be operating on the data. So yes, I, I, I do think it's really powerful. I, I, for anyone who's interested, I wrote an article. I've done one for Harvard Business Review about time tracking that I did in 2018. And then I did a follow-up 
time tracking study in 2020, which I then wrote a piece in early 2021 for, for Fast Company about. I remember that piece. We'll make sure we put those in the show notes. That'll be super helpful. I also find that there's certain things I can only do at particular times of day. Yeah. So like, like my creative energy is only it's the juiciest in the morning. And I'm talking early, like 5 a.m., 6 a.m. I wow. do some of my best work. Yeah, I'm a morning girl, but you won't catch me trying to do that after 2 p.m. Like the creative energy is just not there. So a lot of my administration will happen. Do you find some yeah. similar things for yourself? Well, it's definitely good to be aware of your circadian rhythms and mm-hmm. your your sort of personal ry- rhythms of creativity. There's, you know, sort of cl- the classic Harvard Business Review piece by Tony Schwartz on managing your energy, not mm-hmm. your time, which I think is really spot on. Yeah, for me, I, I think it's it's true. I do start to wane a little bit as the day progresses. I mean, I could do something creative in the afternoon, but yeah, if it's if it's the evening, I'm just like kind of too tired. So you know, you need to be able to, to focus. And if you're, if you're compromised in some way, you're too, you're too hungry, you're too tired, Mm -hmm. whatever, it's just not going to fly. Yeah. Well, now that we've both talked about saying no to things, sometimes we have to say no to good opportunities because they just don't fit. So what's your advice on how to do that well and effectively? Yes. This, this is the hard part, right? And I think this is the part that doesn't get talked about a lot. I think the conversation often is just like, it's, it's a little bit of a straw man because it sort of implies like, oh, well, you're just saying no to bad things, but you're like too nice of a person and you can't say no. And I mean, sometimes that's the case, but often there is a much harder challenge, which is there's something that legitimately is good. You would legitimately like to do it, but just, you know, you get to a certain point in your career where there's a lot going on and it's like, you can't, you just literally can't. There are not enough hours yes. for you to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that it would have been a bad decision. It's just that there's there's a lot of other things and something has to go. So this is the part that actually gets painful because you're like, oh man, you know, if I lived in a parallel universe, I would totally do that. Mm -hmm. So that is hard. There is a story, almost certainly apocryphal story about Warren Buffett, but you know, like a lot of apocryphal stories, it's a good one. And he has somebody, somebody says, oh, how do I pick my goals, Warren? And so the person writes down like 20 goals. And so Warren Buffett looks at it. He's like, okay, great. Now rearrange it. Give me the top five. So the guy says, okay. So he arranges the top five and Warren says, okay, great. Draw a line under those five guys. Okay. Draws a line. And the guy says, well, what now? What now? He's like, you know, I assume, right. That I do these top five first. And only after that, I get to the, to the bottom 15, right, Warren. Mm -hmm. And Warren says, no. He says, take the bottom 15 and cross them off and never look at them again. (laughs) Brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, you know, sometimes we just really have to be ruthless. Yes. And in the long game, I I talk about a sort of now classic formulation by a guy named Derek Sivers, who has the sort of hell yeah or no test, which Mm -hmm. I I think is, is quite good because where we often get tripped up is the sort of middling options, the ones where it's like, well, you know, it could be good if blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of talk yourself into it. And he basically says, no, unless it is literally a nine or possibly a 10 on yeah. the hell yeah scale, get rid of it. Just mm. be 
merciless because otherwise you're never going to have enough room in your life for the great things. Yeah. Now there's a challenge I might take on for the rest of the year, Dory. I can't say everything on my calendar is a hell yeah, or that everything I'm pouring Mm. myself into is a hell yeah. So I'm just going to tuck that away. Thank you very much. I love it. Tegan's (laughs) hell yeah challenge. I want, if you, if you do this, I want to read the article that you write in January, giving us the debrief. We can all go together. You got it. I love it. I need a good challenge like that mid-year. It's such a good time of year to take on something new and fresh. So that's right. That's right. Time to shake it up. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, I'm going to pivot a little bit. And I really want to start getting your personal perspective on some leadership things in addition to these big pieces we talked about with your book. And I love to ask this question, which is, if you had a mic in front of 10,000 leaders, what would you want them to know about leadership today? Yes, it's a great, it's a great question. It's a great forcing function. So when we, when we say today, if we're putting the emphasis on today, I, what continues to be on so many minds is kind of the navigating post-pandemic, like, oh my God, what's work going to look like? You know, Where are we going to work? How does this all shake out? And I think the biggest observation that I have is that it is not that what constitutes good leadership has changed exactly. I, I, don't, I don't really think that that's the case because what was good leadership pre-pandemic is still good leadership. Mm. But the part that I think has changed is that before the pandemic, when the the default, the the you know the the ninety eight percent of the time was that you were in an office with people operating with them, you could I, I say this very deliberately, you could get away with a lot more. Mm. And when I say that, what I mean is you can get away with not being thoughtful and conscious about a company culture because it kind of would take care of itself. Mm. Now, that was never a great way to be. I don't think any leadership, you know, consultant or coach would be like, "Oh yeah, forget about culture. It'll like totally take care of itself." Like that's not that's not not a best practice. But right. for a lot of people, they could skate because it would sort of kind of just happen. Mm-hmm. But the issue when you go hybrid or when you go remote, it ain't going to happen under any circumstance unless you are extremely thoughtful and extremely explicit about it. So the best leaders have been doing it all along, but for everybody else, it's kind of like, oh, now we really need to do that. Now that's actually really important. So I I think that is the change is, is sort of the change in the, in the, in the middle of people who, you know, maybe they, they hadn't sort of fine-tuned that part of their leadership. And now it's like, oh, okay, time to step up. Yeah. Can't get away without it anymore. Beautiful. We've talked a little bit, Dory, about some of the things leaders can do in their personal lives to kind of impact how they lead at work. I mean, time management's low-hanging fruit for sure. And what you just talked about is very important. When you think about leaders' personal lives, what are some of the things from your seat and your personal experience that have helped you by applying it in your personal life have helped you in your leadership world and in, in building your business? Yeah, I love, I love that question. I think that's, that's really helpful. You know, when I think about personal lives, I often think about, you know, re- relationships, romantic relationships yeah. or marital relationships or things like that. Mm-hmm. And one, another interesting wrinkle that came with the pandemic, I think there's kind of an increased awareness about this, we were talking just before we went on about some of the 
challenges, I guess you could say, in terms of women in the workplace mm-hmm. and childcare being a big one, but you know, just different different issues. And I remember years ago, I had a, a friend who worked at this law firm, and I mean, I'm I'm citing this like one small example as kind of the the microcosm of the universe here, but there there were some women who were in positions of high power, you know, much less than men, but there were some women who had been quite successful at the firm. Mm -hmm. And so my friend, you know, was sort of analyzing it. She was trying to say, well, what, what is it that these women have in common that has made them really be able to thrive? Mm, Juicy question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the answer is they all had wives. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that, they were not all gay, although some of them were gay. They had either nannies or they had stay-at-home husbands. Yeah. And what was necessary at this particular firm was you needed an additional person, whoever that was, whoever the wife, I say in air quotes, is to handle everything in your life that is not your life at the firm. And if you had that, well, hey, gender's no barrier. Yep. But most mm. women did not have that. That's and right. so for them, it was a barrier. And so when I think about what it takes, you know, how leaders need to be thinking about their personal lives, I think it it is worth thinking about and kind of interrogating if you are the person who's in the position of influence, do you want that to be the culture that every that everybody has to have the wife or mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, I mean, maybe you do, but we also have to recognize what comes with that, which is that that is not a formulation that most people have access to. That's right. And so when we think about how we want to structure things or ways that we could make changes, is it possible that we could change some of what is needed? Because you know, for a lot of these organizations, for the vast majority of organizations that are grappling with any kind of diversity issues, of course they are not sexist or racist in any intentional way. But it is a question if we really want to be tapping everyone's full capacity, it's kind of thinking about the next level of, oh, okay, is it that the way that things are set up is predicated on assumptions that really aren't true for most people in a given demographic situation? And would we want to think about creating alternatives? Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's a big one. And most people listening have the authority to influence that conversation at work. So thank you for that. And I will add that it's okay if you need some work wife assistance while you're waiting for your own work systems to change, right? So huge point. It reminds me a little of some lean in points in terms of the kind of support we often need in order to do it all. But I appreciate more that just the view of, okay, how do we tune up the system? so that people have more access and can show up even bigger at work. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, I mean, along, alongside of it, it is of course, recognizing, you know, we, we recognize the present reality as we work to create new realities. And so not being afraid to, you know, if it turns out that, you know, let's say just pursuing this example, that what really is necessary for success at your firm, at your company, whatever it is, is like the ability to be all in. Well, then if that's the terrain that you're playing in, then, okay, do that. I mean, I I hire people and pay them money to do like everything. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't, I don't have one work 
you know, wife or, or whatever exactly. But there, there are a lot of, a lot of people in a lot of services and I don't hesitate to do it because I do understand that in my business, I need to be tapping into my highest and best use. And so yeah. if I can pay the, the dry cleaner, the housekeeper, the, this, the, that, the, the cook, those are smart decisions. And I, I think that we, especially in sort of like a middle-class American egalitarian <laughs> view, it, it's, mm-hmm. you know, kind of feels weird sometimes to some people. Yeah. Although I don't think it should. I mean, I have friends in India and it's a, it's a totally different view. Oh, the cultures. They, yeah. Go yeah. ahead. Mm-hmm. They actually feel bad if they don't employ people That's because right. there's, you know, there's so many poor people in India. It's like, well, you are selfish. Mm-hmm. If you have money that you could give to somebody in the form of a job and you do not do that, that's yeah. the orientation. It's like, oh, well, that's a really interesting and different way of looking at it. So yeah. I think sometimes we need to reframe for ourselves as well. I totally agree. And, you know, I think my one missed point on the time management that was sitting with me that I didn't get to bring up was that I outsource anything that's not the best use of my brain and time. And the further I go, the longer I'm at this, the more I outsource the things that are not meant for me to be doing anymore. Yeah. And that's in the business, that's outside of the business in the home. So I love that you brought that up. And I think, particularly for women, there's a lot of good, there's a couple of good articles, I think in the New York times about, I think they're referring to it as emotional labor, like just how much women are constantly thinking ahead in the household and making sure that contractors are coordinated and blah, blah, blah. And all the things happen. And if we could just start keeping track of that in our time studies, it would make very real for us that we're talking about dozens of hours a month that we could have back. Mm -hmm. I I try to make my cats carry some of the load and they just, they refuse. (laughs) They just look at you, walk across your keyboard. Really not helpful. (laughs) Give you the tail wag. Yeah, totally. I've got two boys myself for boys that are doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So Dory, has your own leadership changed or evolved in the last couple of years? You know, it's a, it's a good question. I always have tried to for the people who are working with me to be mindful of the, the arc that they want to pursue. Mm-hmm. It's not always possible, but I know that one of the most motivating things and, and frankly, something that we want to get to as leaders, but there's just like so many things that have to get done and so many yep. exigent circumstances. But you know, one of the most motivating things is if you can really understand and tap into the longer term, speaking of the long game, yep. longer term <laughs> career goals of the people working for you so that you can understand, all right, mm. what are the kinds of projects that they're going to be really excited to do versus the yeah. ones that they like can do, but they don't love? Mm-hmm. And is there a way that you can begin to sort of steer the more of the stuff that they really do like or help even just explain to them and sort of position what you're having them do as a way of learning more about this area or getting more experience in this area so that it's contextualized and it and it makes sense to them because we have access to to more more or different information than some of the people working for us we we often assume that dots are being connected and they might not be they mm-hmm. might just feel like oh I'm doing the thing because I have to do the thing and if we can help explain to them, oh, but if you do the thing, it's going to tee you up to, to learn this, to be in a better position for this, to make this connection, to make this contact. All of a sudden, it becomes a little more mission-driven and a little less like, oh, I got to check out another, another thing off the checkbox. And that is something that imperfectly, but I, I, do, I do strive to do. In terms of how the leadership has 
changed, I guess, you know, for me, you know, as we, as we think about sort of, you know, great resignation kind of things, mm-hmm. I just really have become just, you know, incredibly mindful that if you have a good employee, you really need to treat that person like gold. <laughs> and yeah. it's not only hard to replace people in general, just in terms of like, you know, getting a body these mm-hmm. days, but having someone that, you know, knows you well, knows your style, has assimilated implicitly a lot of information, it becomes really valuable. And so you have to, you know, kind of be disproportionately thoughtful in recognizing and appreciating that. Oh, well said. I was just talking with another leader yesterday in my private life about our career trajectories. And she's had this very linear, stayed with a company 20 years and up and up she went. I would change jobs every three years. And it was strategic. Like if if there were no more interesting opportunities or big fat pay raises that came with them, it was time for me to find the next one because intellectually I would get bored if there wasn't enough growth. And those are the people you probably want on your team, right? Longer term. But that means we're going to keep paying more and more and more for them the longer they stay. And to your point, having to create very explicit opportunities that point out to them how they're going to grow. So just fantastic point. Now I work for myself. I'm the job that I won't quit. I'm pretty sure. So <laughs> let's, let's hope. Let's hope. Let's hope. I'm in big trouble if I do. So Dory, where can listeners find you online and learn even more about you? Yeah. Thank you so much, Tegan. My website is doryclark.com. And I actually have a bunch by a bunch. I mean, about 700 free articles that I've written for places like Art Business Review and Fast Company and things like that. But I'll also mention that for folks who might be particularly interested in in thinking about some of what we talked about with long-term strategic thinking, I have a long-game strategic thinking self-assessment that helps you walk through your own strategic thinking and how you can optimize that. And folks can get it for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. Perfect. I want to point out a couple of other things too, because what I haven't mentioned yet to listeners is that I have partaken of a lot of your programs and experiences, and that's part of how we know each other. And I just want to express some gratitude, especially for like the mastermind experience. So getting to do that with you was fantastic. And what I loved was how you curated this group of just really smart folks who all we do is help each other think and play bigger. And that's pretty rare and special. So I hope you're continuing to do those each year. I think you are, right? It's true. I do. Yes. And can can people find out about those on the website? Is that listed as well? Yeah. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Folks can go to doryclark.com and click on mastermind to learn more. Awesome. And then your recognized expert course is everything. So listeners go check those two things out. I'm just personally endorsing because I've loved them and enjoyed them so much. So And Dory, I appreciate you for prioritizing us into your very busy schedule. We feel lucky we made the cut. So thank you. And in closing, as you know, the podcast was created to discover the behaviors, practices, beliefs, and skills that the future leaders need in order to keep leading the systems that are just moving faster and faster, it seems. So to get your take on what's required of future leaders, just finish this sentence for me. Leaders of the future will ask themselves, this question, colon, (laughs) what is it that I can do today that will make tomorrow easier and better? Oh, that is perfection. 
Dory Clark, as always, you're brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with the world. Everybody go out and get the book, The Long Game. It is so good and trajectory changing. So thanks, Dory. Tegan, thank you. So good talking with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Workplace Forward podcast, where leaders and executives can stay ahead of the curve on emerging leadership ideas and self-care best practices. Guided by executive coach Tegan Travato and her expert guests. Please take 60 seconds to help others discover the Workplace Forward podcast by going to iTunes to subscribe, give five stars, and leave a comment. Want to learn more about Bright Arrow Coaching and leadership development? Visit the website at www.brightarrowcoaching.com. See you next time. And while you're filling your team's cups, remember to take care of yourself too.